Um, welcome to the second annual uh, Darndorf Lecture and Colloquium, which commemorates uh, Ralph Darndorf, uh, the third warden of this college and a great uh, liberal European thinker. We're delighted to have members of the Darndorf family here, uh, and also very pleased to welcome Professor Michael Goering, um, uh, the president of the Site Foundation in Hamburg, um, a foundation with which uh, Ralph Darndorf was closely associated and which has generously supported this colloquium. Ralph Darndorf was not a religious person. Um, he was, quite unusually, brought up in an entirely secular way by pre-war German social democrats. And I think it's fair to say he hardly had a religious nerve in his body, but he was very interested in religion as a social force. And above all, central to his concerns was the theme of diversity, difference, and conflict. Conflict which he regarded not as something to be resolved or stopped, but as an essential feature of a free society and an essential source of human creativity. Charles. Um, and the job was not to stop it, but to civilize it, to harness it as a force for civilization. And of course, in our time, religious differences are among the main sources, or at least occasions, for conflict, not least around free speech, which is one of the major subjects of research in our Darndorf program for the study of freedom. Hence our topic today. Is nothing sacred, religion, and free speech? And I've asked our speakers, at least initially, to concentrate on two main areas. Firstly, the question of what the law or the policies of a state should do about the question of religion and free speech. Should we not be free by law to say anything about religion? Or should we not be free by law to say anything about the religious? That is to say, the believers rather than the belief. Is that distinction, in fact, at all sustainable? There are, in fact, across the world, a huge range of laws of this kind. We ourselves in Britain have on the statute book a law on incitement to religious hatred. Fortunately, uh, an effectively emasculated and neutered law, uh, but nonetheless on the statute book. And this ranges then all the way to Pakistan, where to make derogatory remarks about the Prophet Muhammad is punishable by law, by death. But this is only half the story, because the most effective uh, 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 constraint, limit, on free speech about religion in our own countries, in so-called free societies at the moment, is nothing in the law. It is strictly illegal, violent intimidation. It is people saying, if you say that, we will kill you. And then sometimes they do. 
As you know, the governor of Punjab and the minister for minorities have been assassinated in Pakistan only this year. Theo van Gogh in the Netherlands, Salman Rushdie and Ayan Hirsi Ali living under death threats, but it's not only atheists and free thinkers. Many Muslims also live under death threats. One of our speakers today, Dr. Osama Hassan, has himself received death threats quite recently for arguing that the theory of evolution is compatible with Islam. And it's not just Muslims. The intimidation of the play about the Sikhs, Beshti. M.F. Hussein, probably the most famous Indian painter who died just a few days ago, died in exile because of intimidation by Hindu nationalists. Mark Thompson of the BBC, who's with us here today, could tell a tale of perhaps not quite so extreme, but nonetheless quite nasty threats uh, relating to the BBC broadcasting Jerry Springer, the opera. The problem is, of course, if we ask the question, what can the law or the state do effectively to stop such violent intimidation, then very soon you get to the point where those laws themselves, like that on the glorification of terrorism, are becoming a limit, a restriction of free speech. So that's the first area. The second area is, I think, at least as important. So much of the free speech literature is about what the law should or should not allow. But actually, there's a vast area of social and cultural uh, and educational norms, editorial standards. The right to offend does not imply a duty to offend. And it seems to me at least as important to examine those sort of judgments which we make voluntary in a university like this. I hope Charles can talk, for example, about the choices he had to make as editor of national newspapers. What is the social practice of a neutral or secular public sphere? What does it mean in reality? Is there not perhaps some special respect that we might want to give voluntarily to religious beliefs, not imposed by law, if only because these are the beliefs people hold most sacred? Or is it rather the case that the claims of religion should be treated exactly the same as the claims of mathematics or sociology or history? Why should the claim for the virgin birth of Jesus Christ be treated any differently from the claim that 2 plus 2 equals 5. <laughs> These are some of the questions that I hope our speakers will address. We have a supremely well-qualified panel. Our first speaker is a philosopher and atheist. Our second speaker, a scientist and Muslim. Our third speaker, a journalist and Christian. Uh, I'll leave it to them to describe how they see the relations between these two sides of their beings. Um, if anybody had not heard of Anthony Grayling at the beginning of this week, <laughs> um, they certainly have now, because he's all been all over the papers. You may have noticed a little noise outside the front grate. Uh, as the founder of the New College of the Humanities, not to be confused 
uh, with New College Oxford. Um, this is a very interesting subject for debate, but I should stress it's not our subject this evening. Anthony is here as a philosopher and public intellectual. He has published extensively on philosophical themes. He was until recently professor of philosophy at Birkbeck. Um, he is the president-elect of the British Humanist Association, and his most recent publication is The Good Book, A Humanist Bible. Dr. Osama Hussan is a scientist. He studied physics and artificial intelligence at Cambridge and London universities. He's senior lecturer at Middlesex University, a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, but he's also a trained Islamic scholar, an imam, who actually comes out of the Salafi tradition, which, as many of you will know, has been the source of, or at least from which has come, many fundamentalist and extremist tendencies, uh, which he knew about in his youth, but more recently, he has become a very brave and clear critic of extremism, pleading for an Islamic version of the secular public sphere, and as I said, by arguing that the theory of evolution is compatible with Islam, he has um, earned himself, I think that's the right phrase, death threats, and is in fact unable to preach in his own mosque as a result. Charles Moore is one of our most distinguished conservative journalists and commentators. He's been an editor uh, for nearly 20 years of The Spectator, of The Sunday Telegraph, of The Daily Telegraph, um, he's the official biographer of Margaret Thatcher. He's also a convert from the Church of England to Catholicism and has written often and very thoughtfully about religion in public life, about the kinds of issues we're talking about today, not least in relation to Islam. Each of our speakers will speak for just 15 minutes and then we'll have some time for discussion. So please join me in welcoming our panel. And let me ask you to um, well, whenever there's a philosophical aspect to an occasion, and there very much so is one of this occasion, it does no harm to brandish the name Wittgenstein, and I thought I'd do it early, um, get it over with, uh, because Wittgenstein said it's always worthwhile assembling some reminders in order to clarify matters. And the two reminders that we need to assemble for this discussion are these. At first, it's worthwhile using the expression freedom of expression rather than just freedom of speech, because we do want to include other forms of expression than speaking and writing. And indeed, uh, one, one of the people mentioned by Timothy in his exordium was a, a very substantial and considerable artist who recently died in exile, as uh, Timothy says, precisely because he wasn't allowed to express himself in his own culture. And the second thing that we do well to remember is just why it is that freedom of expression is so vital. It's not a mere piety. It's not possible to have others of our civil liberties unless we have freedom of expression. We cannot have a democratic order unless people can advance ideas and policies and compete for the attention of the electorate for them. We can't have a proper educational system unless people can put forward ideas and make a case for them and contest them and criticize them. We can't defend or assert our, our liberties unless we're able to uh, explain to people that we feel they're under threat or lay a claim to them or uh, go to law to defend them. And we can't indeed have a proper due process of law unless things can be aired and discussed and tested uh, properly. 
So freedom of expression uh, lies at the very heart of the indivisibility of our civil liberties. It's a very crucial one. And the great importance of it to the well-being of a polity, the well-being of a society in all its different aspects can't be sufficiently often enough stressed. Having said that, uh, we, we have to distinguish two um, constraints that uh, very often are invoked when we think about the reach that freedom of expression has across the, the range of our uh, social and political and educational lives. And these two constraints are sometimes thought of in terms of pragmatic considerations and of practical ones. And there's an important distinction between pragmatic and practical considerations in the following way. Uh, pragmatic considerations are invoked when people think that it would just make things work a little bit better and it'd be, uh, you know, th life would be a little easier if we were to compromise a little bit, if um, when we write our newspaper articles we uh, decided not to provoke uh, too much hostility or, or um, uh, criticism. Uh, but the practical uh, considerations are the ones that I think Timothy had in mind when he talked about the fact that having a right to uh, free expression doesn't entail that one should exercise that right at every opportunity. I mean, famously, there is the cliché, which, like most clichés, has the merit of being true, that it is uh, uh, to do a wrong, to shout fire in a crowded cinema when there isn't a fire. And so we, we understand that there are practical considerations that have to be borne in mind in the exercise of uh, the right to freedom of expression as in the exercise of any of our rights. And I think the debate that we have in our contemporary society about the place of religious voices in the public square and of the effect of religious influence uh, in our educational system bears very much on this practical rather than on this pragmatic matter, not for itself a practical reason, but for a reason of principle, namely, that we shouldn't seek the pragmatic option of saying, look, let us keep the peace, let's just not rock the boat, let's... Uh, um, temper what we really think or feel about things and what we're going to say about things, just in order uh, that uh, um, we, we, none of us get into trouble or have any ructions. Because if you did that, it would ultimately prove corrosive. Ultimately, uh, systematic self-censorship, ultimately the uh, yielding to a temptation not to accept that there is a cost and a burden to having a very important right like free speech is corrosive in our society. But what one can do is that one can be practical about it, as one is when one restrains oneself from shouting fire in a crowded cinema. One recognises that there are, in given circumstances and for specifiable reasons, uh, 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 that there is a logic in, in those circumstances and for those reasons to not doing something, to exercising a certain kind of restraint, or just falling back on common courtesy. It doesn't mean that one is one has temporised one's commitment to freedom of expression, not to shout fire in a crowded cinema, it means that one recognises that there are other goods and other harms that are uh, at stake. And one might want to respect those in those circumstances and for those specifiable reasons, just providing that one doesn't make it a principle that one does it always, which is what being pragmatic about it uh, results in. So th this idea of... of uh, uh, exercising what uh, um, an Aristotelian might call uh, the, the judgment about the right course of action in a given situation is the one that, if people are thoughtful and if people are responsible, and I think ethical responsibility has become uh, that aspect of our action in a society, which uh, 
most importantly, I think, helps to govern our relationships with other people in that society. If we think about what the responsible thing to do is in a given situation, even with the exercise of so fundamental a right as, as freedom of expression, one is able, while uh, maintaining the principle, holding to the principle, nevertheless using it responsibly. And the particular application of this to the um, question of religion in the public sphere is in a secular uh, society, uh, in a mature liberal democratic order, one must be committed to the thought that every point of view, um, providing it is not uh, a point of view that does incite to, to violence or, or to harm, that every point of view um, has to be judged on its merits as to whether or not it should be subject to some kind of social control. And that the default position is that very few such points of view should be. But there are some. Importantly, I think, that in connection with a, a person's disability, if uh, he or she has one, uh, in connection with the gender of a person, the connection age of a person, connection with the ethnicity and the sexuality of a person, all things that people don't choose, don't choose your age or your ethnicity or your sexuality, with respect to these things, you should be protected from all forms of discrimination, including the discrimination that arises from uh, hate speech uh, and, and from um, uh, criticism and attack on the basis uh, of that unchosen feature. There, there can be laws. It seems to me quite clear that it must be possible to respect the possibility of freedom for the individual who might otherwise be attacked by protecting them from unbridled freedom of expression. And those cases seem to me justified. But with respect to things that you can choose, even if it might be hard to choose some of them, maybe because you were brought up in a particular religious faith or in a particular political tradition, it might be very hard to break ranks with the people you've, you've uh, belonged to all your life. Nevertheless, in principle, you can. You can leave a religion, you can leave a political movement, you can give up a certain kind of fashion, you can change your hairstyle. There, there are various things that you might not wish to do, might find it very hard to do, but in principle can do. And these things ultimately, therefore, are a choice. And with respect to those things, why should uh, th there be a law that protects you from criticism, even if the criticism, the ridicule, the commentary is offensive? Here, we're not properly at all in the realm of law. Here, there is no demand, I think, for uh, raising legal um, fences around people because they choose to be Lib Dems or because they choose to be uh, Mormons. Here, I think we should accept that when people make and live these choices, that they, at the same time, accept the cost of doing so. And that is that they might be criticized, they might be ridiculed, they might be offended by what people say. And that is just par for the course in a society where other people may very well disagree with you and have an entitlement to express that disagreement. But this is the realm also where considerations of practicality arise. If we live in an inflamed period where people have violent attachments to one or another view, if, for example, we found that uh, uh, poking fun at Mr Cameron caused mass ranks of Tories to rise up and set fire to public buildings, then we might uh, consider um, what, in what circumstances we would offer criticisms of Mr Cameron. We might consider the practicality and 
that practicality is measured in terms of the consequences, either of good or harm, for other people and for uninvolved third parties. There is, in other words, a demand here for responsibility. And the case that I think we've, we've got to be able to articulate, we've got to make this case out for ourselves, is that it has to be possible to live according to principles and to adhere to those very, very central and important principles which govern the whole uh, array, the whole framework set of, of fibres that are constitutive of our society and, and how we organise it, um, but to do it in an, in an intelligent and uh, thoughtful way and sometimes in a responsible way, that it shouldn't be impossible to make those things consistent. And really, the debate that we've seen, this rather bad-tempered quarrel which has been going on now for uh, a decade and, and more, uh, I think um, prompted uh, into a whole new register by what happened in 9-11 in the United States of America, the bad-tempered quarrel between people on opposite sides of the religious argument, ha has been one which um, I think quite rightly has uh, allowed for a good deal of very thorough criticism, uh, a, a good deal of airing of of views, a good deal of, of uh, opening of wounds that should be allowed to bleed. There's no question about that. But uh, on the other hand, the norms of a society which respects itself and respects open debate and respects the opportunity to answer criticisms and affronts uh, should also be part of the story. I had uh, the, the great pleasure of being invited by the United Nations Development Agency to go to Bhutan um, the year before last Whereas, you know, against the will of the people, the last king imposed democracy. And uh, this democratic experiment, which was just warming up at that time, um, was being conducted quite thoughtfully by the people who had had to choose which political party they were going to, to be in and uh, submit themselves to the first voting procedure that they had there. And they were very interested to think their way through and to get from other people who were interested in these matters some perspectives on what it is to occupy a democratic order, in particular, how they conducted themselves with respect to civil liberties, given that we live in an era where security considerations bear down rather heavily on some of our civil liberties, including uh, freedom of expression. And so they invited a, a group of people to come and talk. And, and the, the point that I felt that I should like to offer them was that a democratic order is a noisy order. That democracy is not just uh, elections periodically, but in between them, a lot of argument and quarrel and dissension and discussion and criticism and offensive remarks and jokes and cartoons and private eye. And that this noise, this uh, tumult, if you, if you like, is a mark of health. That the silence of, of tyranny is, this, that, that silence is a mark of tyranny. That when there seems to be peace, what you have actually is a kind of civil liberties wasteland. So, the, the anxieties that people felt about uh, criticism and noise and, and people shouting their opinions. <laughs> that, actually, that actually it is a sign of, of health in, in a society and should be accepted as such. And, and just recently I was uh, uh, telling some of our number that um, having begun to speak in, a, in a, a circumstance rather like this, somebody shouted out, you have no right to speak. And uh, his neighbours in the auditorium turned on him and told him to shut up, and I felt moved to defend his right to tell me that I had the right to, providing, providing he would make a case for, for that being so. And I think that's the important thing. Providing there's an opportunity for a case, then in all those matters where we've, we should 
lift the constraints of everything other than responsibility and thoughtfulness about how we use our rights. And in all those cases, what we should be uh, trying to do, however uncomfortable it is, and however difficult sometimes it proves, um, that we should defend freedom of expression um, more or less to the last. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, professors. I'm very honoured um, to be here and uh, addressing you today. I'd like to talk about um, this idea of Islamic secularism, which I had promoted. Um, what I meant by it, actually, it was one of the reasons I received death threats. So, uh, uh, the main reason was, was over the evolution issue, but the, the people who handed out leaflets in my mosque, and those leaflets are available in the, on the internet if anybody wants to read them, um, had a charge sheet of four uh, main crimes I, I had apparently committed. Uh, the, the first and most important one for which they said, um, and they shouted out in the audience, they didn't say you have no right to speak, they said you should be killed, what you're saying, um, uh, was over evolution, of course. But uh, one of the others was, they called it belief in secularism. And, uh, and I'm sure like many of you who, who find it easy to reconcile issues, you, you, you know, you, you think this is all a big misunderstanding. And that's how I often feel about uh, issues of conflict of political conflict, religious conflict, etc. And people would just, just sit down and, and talk in a civilised manner. So, so what did I mean by, you know, Islamic secularism? So, as I think Professor Gartanash hinted when he talked about people being brought up in a secular world, for, for many people, the secular and the religious don't coexist. They are entirely separate. And that is one of the sources of conflict in the world also at the moment. But for me, there is no distinction between the, the sacred and the secular in, in the sense that uh, the word secular from the original Latin just meaning the world. Uh, the world is sacred because it is God's creation. And in the end, whether you accept something as, as sacred or not, it depends on your faith. Now, Prince Charles some years ago argued that uh, the Western world has to relearn a sense of the sacred from the Muslims, he said. Uh, this was some 10 or 15 years ago he gave it in a public lecture. And that's something that was very close to my heart, which was I do have a strong sense of the sacred. As a scientist, and I was pr had the honor of discussing this with Professor Dawkins earlier, uh, everything in science I see as, as God's creation, the way God has created, it is sacred. Uh, many people have written on this, say, Hussein Nasser and others, uh, the, the, the idea of sacred science. However, you cannot force people to have faith. I mean, that's just that's the nature of faith. Uh, itself. I can't face, uh, force my faith on you and vice versa, and some people have no, no faith in any religion whatsoever. They can't be forced. And, and therefore it seems to me that in practice we, we arrive at a neutral place. So for example, science, as, as Professor Dawkins rightly says, is, is a purely neutral uh, activity, or, or could be actually, he probably doesn't say that. Um, but I, I believe believers and non-believers can do science together. And we can discover the secrets behind the black holes or, or behind DNA or any other wonderful phenomenon of, of science. But the interpretation of, of that is left to the individual. For a believer, this is something sacred and, and majestic, and it's uh, a reflection of God's names and, uh, in, in the laws of science. For a non-believer, it's not. It has nothing to do with God. It, it's beautiful and uh, majestic and inspiring, etc., but it's, uh, it's nothing to do with God. Now, now something similar goes on in the public space, I believe, when it, when it comes to living together, just learning to live together. And uh, this is not a new idea. Um, 
because I, I read in Islamic tradition and Islamic law uh, centuries of this kind of thinking. And when I talked about Islamic secularism, this, this was based on something I read from Ibn Khaldun, who lived uh, six centuries ago in North Africa. And his book, The Muqaddimah, The Introduction to History, is an incredible book. Arnold Toynbee said it was the greatest book that had ever been written by any human mind anywhere. And uh, in that, he comments on the teaching of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who said to his people, you know your worldly affairs better. Um, when he commented about a matter of agriculture, actually, cross-pollination, and, and his disciples listened to what he said, and uh, the yields went down, and then they complained to him. They complained to the Prophet and said, you know, we followed your advice, and things went wrong. And he, he replied to them, saying, you know your worldly affairs better. Um, I'm here to teach the way to God, uh, spirituality, etc. Um, but uh, you can put that aside for things that you know better. And the, the, the mention of the word world in there, what led me to the idea of Islamic secularism, uh, you know, the word secular itself, uh, as I said, originally in the Latin, meaning worldly. Meaning that, again, as Ibn Khaldun comments, he says the prophets of God, and for believers, you know, the prophets of God, Jesus, Muhammad, Moses, all the others, Buddha, etc. And in many Muslim countries, by the, by the way, it's not just the prophet Muhammad's uh, reputation which is protected by faith. It's actually Jesus Christ and Moses and Abraham and everyone. Um, Ibn Khaldun says that the prophets of God were sent to teach people the way to God. Uh, you have to believe in God, of course. Again, I was discussing this earlier with the professor. If you believe in God, then, then that follows. If you don't believe in God, then there's no concept of, of uh, getting closer to God, uh, uh, etc. But, but, but for believers, there is an issue. How do you make contact with God or with that uh, unifying principle? or that transcendent and imminent being or, or principle or whatever you want to call it um, in life. So Ibn Khaldun says that, that the, the prophets teach you ways of behavior, you know, including prayer and fasting and, and serving the poor, etc., uh, which humanists uh, agree with that as well, of course, in terms of serving people, not, not the prayer, etc. But he says, this is Ibn Khaldun, is that the human crafts, um, the, te the technology, the architecture, the science, the agriculture, the arts of war, um, the craft, the the, uh, the craft of government, of civilization, etc. These are purely left to the human intellect, and the human intellect is one of God's great greatest gifts, the greatest gift to us. It is what distinguishes us from the rest of creation or of the rest of nature, and what um, gives us mastery over the rest of, uh, of nature, or so much of nature, nature, at least on the earth. And historically, of course, the, the Islamic civilization, like the Christian and others, celebrated the power of reason and logic as this great divine gift. And, and of course, Muslims and Muslim universities led the world for centuries. The first universities and hospitals, etc., were in the Muslim world. And there was this immense passion for learning uh, you had the House of Wisdom in Baghdad in over a thousand years ago, which translated uh, so many of the Greek works uh, into Arabic, and those eventually reached the West through that. So much of our uh, scientific heritage had, as part of its story, uh, the Islamic period, of course. Um, and the modern world, in that sense, has those Islamic roots. But, you know, they've been long forgotten, especially as the Muslim world has, uh, has descended into, uh, uh, well, into the state that it, it is now. 
So I believe that, that particular idea that uh, you, you develop learning and argumentation. Uh, Islam itself had dozens of philosophical schools earlier on, dozens of legal schools. Um, still now, there are many interpretations of Islamic law um, and the faith itself. But very early on, there was this immense flowering of learning and dialogue, which went on. And people generally didn't uh, have this kind of inquisition, inquisitional um, approach uh, to things. There, there were exceptions, of course. There, there were one or two Muslim inquisitions. Uh, the 20th century has, seen, has, been, has been a century of fundamentalism uh, in all religions, perhaps. So uh, we've, come at, we've come to a very uh, terrible place there with the religions. But uh, I, I see in the, in the reading of Islamic civilization an immense opportunity or immense spaces where things like freedom of speech, etc., that we've been talking about, were kind of assumed, taken for granted, and, and also had a very strong democratic uh, character to it. Um, one example is the treatment of minorities, for which I'd, I'd recommend Zachary Carroll's book, People of the Book, about how Jews and Christians lived uh, uh, within the Muslim civilization. He's, he's a student of Professor uh, Richard Bulliet, who, who of course wrote the case for Islam and Christian civilization. And, uh, and of course in India, uh, where the Mughals ruled for, for centuries over a majority Hindu population, Hindu and Sikh population, there were, again, different examples. There were one or two of the Mughal emperors who uh, persecuted uh, some of their subjects. There was also Akbar, uh, centuries ago, who, uh, who had Hindu and Muslim wives and uh, attempted this kind of great syncretic uh, project in, in terms of uh, bringing the religions together and, and going to the essential mystical truth or the central truth, uh, which lie at the core of all religions. And uh, that project you know, may or may not have failed, but the point is it, it was tried by the emperor of, uh, of Muslim India at the time. And in fact, it still has enormous uh, influence, especially in the various uh, orders of Sufism. Now, relatedly, I'd just like to talk about uh, law and spirit, because, because again, for Muslims, Sharia is very important, Sharia or law. And uh, because I've studied Sharia and I was working as an imam, I'm actually less concerned about law. For me, law is the, is the basis. It's the basic minimum that you expect. Uh, law is related to justice, which is, which is, again, the basic you expect, or we should expect in society. But there's something far beyond justice, and which is you know, the higher things in life, like mercy, for example. In traditional Islamic uh, discourse, you, you would talk about uh, minimum being justice, and the highest level being mercy is what you aspire to. <clears throat> of course, that's found in, in, in Western discourse as well, of course. I was very struck by the Scottish minister a couple of years ago when he uh, released Ab uh, al-Magrahi, the, the Libyan, uh, who was convicted for the Lockerbie bombing. He, he talked about the same thing, of course. He talked about justice and compassion, or what uh, Muslims would, would call mercy. And as an imam, who's more interested not in explaining to people the, uh, the do's and don'ts of the law, and which can often degenerate into just mere ritual observance without any spirit or soul. And it, it is a problem which plagues Islam and Judaism, I believe, and, and other forms of, uh, of religion. But um, I'm more interested in uh, inspiring people with the spirit, you know, to do higher, to, to aspire to the highest. And, and therefore it becomes, it becomes a question of good manners in the end, as uh, Professor Grayling said, you know, etiquette. Um, what should you do rather than what uh, are you allowed to do? In a Muslim society, it's, 
it's very different, and um, you know, people. I'm sure people will challenge for centuries. There were, uh, and there are laws in Muslim countries, which are are not upholding uh, freedom of speech. In the sense that, uh, you know, the character of the Prophet, for example, or the person of the Prophet, or of Jesus Christ, or others, are not seen as distant people who who no longer exist. In a sense, the, the Prophet Muhammad is very real and even more real than than people. Um, ourselves. Um, for example, because Muslims are taught to love the Prophet Muhammad more than they love themselves or their families. And I think that brings us to the point which Professor Grayling was talking about. What, what do you do in such a situation? And for Muslim society, the situation is different. And I think, I think that's where the principle of democracy uh, comes in, because I see, again, Islam originally as having very strong democratic uh, roots. There's a chapter of the Quran entitled Shura or consultation. So the whole political structure, structures of Islam are always thought to be inspired by the principle of consultation, which for me, democracy is one form uh, of, uh, of consulting people. So what should Muslim countries do, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, this and that? Um, you know, I'll largely leave it to them. What I do know is that most of the cases uh, brought under the blasphemy laws are usually brought for other reasons, political reasons and uh, people settling scores against each other. And, and generally, people you know, don't go around uh, in Muslim societies. They have a sense of the sacred. They don't go around uh, um, insulting the, the great religious figures of the past. It's not actually a, a big issue. The, the, the Muslim world has, has far more serious issues in terms of you know, basic hum, human rights and uh, uh, the lack of democracy now. Uh, with dictators and tyrants, and we've, we've seen the Arab Spring has, has brought all of, that, all of that out. But as I said, it, it comes to you know, basic eti etiquette in terms of spirit rather than, rather than law. So for example, uh, when it came to the cartoons and things, uh, the Danish cartoons, it, you know, they didn't bother me. I, I didn't look at the cartoon, in fact. I'm not interested. I didn't want to look at those cartoons because the prophet is sacred to me. Um, but uh, I understand why. I, I met one of the Norwegian uh, editors who told me why he felt it was very important to uphold the freedom of speech and to print those cartoons. And I tried to reason with, with him as to, as to why. I tried to help him, help him to understand why Muslims took such offense. And uh, the interpretation of uh, Islamic law, the philosophical basis to which I subscribe, and it is a very dominant one actually in the history of Islam, it's called the theory of maqasid, the theory of the high objectives of law, is all about benefit versus harms, good versus... Uh, um, or good versus mischief in society. And I believe it actually upholds this reading of law as uh, an instrument for social order and, and social justice. And the issues of faith, etc., and spirit are, are left to individuals' faith. And that's the voluntary thing which faith communities, you know, imams, priests, rabbis, and others, will, will teach their congregations and, and the communities of believers um, need to deal with those. And, and in the end, for me, I, I agree. It is entirely a matter of, of pragmatism and practice. What do people hold sacred? So when Professor Garton Ash asked the question, is anything sacred? You know, my answer was actually everything is sacred for me, as I said. But uh, we have to apply the principle of democracy. Any, any, any society has to agree democratically what we're going to protect, what we're not going to. And often you have, you have to take the practicalities and pragmatism into account. Uh, so, for example, you know, Glass, uh, Rangers v Celtic recently, and this has become a big issue in Scotland. The whole nation gripped by that issue in the Parliament. Um, is it is it okay to uh, to badmouth 
Celtic or Rangers, most people would say, yeah, that's fine. But not on the big day of the old, old firm derby, when there are thousands of people ready to kind of start fighting. Uh, most people would accept that's not a good time to, uh, to shout obscenities against uh, each other's figures or clubs, for example. Uh, and there is that intriguing question which you mentioned about the shouting fire in the cinema. Interestingly, one of the uh, young bloggers who uh, launched a, a vitriolic attack on me recently um, uh, over several issues, she actually wrote, and she's a young uh, Western British-born uh, blogger, uh, she said Osama should, should learn that uh, you cannot shout evolution in the mosque just as you cannot shout fire in a, in a crowded <laughs> theatre. Yeah. So, um, uh, well, I think my time is finished now, but I hope I've tried to convey some of the issues which um, arise out of this, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to perhaps uh, contribute to the dialogue uh, around free speech, especially uh, from a perspective of Islam. Thank you very much. It's a, an honour to be here, and um, I, I come because I would always be honoured to be asked to stand this, but particularly um, because Tim asked me. Uh, I first um, came across Tim when he was reporting for the spectator from Poland at the time of uh, martial law and solidarity and all of that. Uh, and I mention that partly because what Tim wrote was very marvellous uh, and also because it was an early example that I experienced in uh, my journalistic life of a time when uh, Christianity, um, and in this case specifically the Catholic faith, um, produced what uh, was in the, f in the forefront of fighting for freedom. And uh, they were confronting an atheistic state uh, which had um, a law which was uh, entirely secular uh, and which theoretically guaranteed all rights. Uh, I think that's a sort of important example to bear in mind. Um, what we're being asked to consider today is uh, the idea that uh, insults to religion should be forbidden by law. That's, that's the first bit of what we're being asked to consider. Um, I think I'm going to end up agreeing with what I imagine is the majority view here, that they should not be uh, forbidden by law. Um, but before I do that, I just do want to remind everybody why it is um, that people might think that religion, uh, have thought historically that religion should be protected by law. Uh, and the fundamental answer is that law in the history of the world has largely grown out of religion. And therefore, what the law of the land is, um, uh, has, is based on the people's idea of what the truth about everything is. And the truth about everything has been revealed uh, to the people through religion. Uh, and therefore, the, the, the state and the law is constructed upon uh, the truth of religion. And therefore, um, and a denial of the truth of, of religion is not merely upsetting for religious people. Uh, it is an attack on the idea of law itself, on the idea of the state itself, on the idea of the, the public order as it is understood. This is, people must understand this in order to see, as it were, where people are coming from. And um, that seems to me, at the time that it developed, um, uh, an, an understandable, indeed, an almost universal um, uh, fact. Um, and if you think of it, for example, in this university, uh, it would now be thought anathema for this great university to express collectively a religious preference. But of course, this great university was for hundreds and hundreds of years exclusively a religious institution, first a Catholic one, 
uh, and second an Anglican one. And I think it's true, isn't it, Tim, that it only, it's only in the middle of the 19th century that dons were permitted not to be Anglican clergymen. I think, they, uh, I think they all were Anglican clergy until that time. And however monstrous one might think that now, um, it, on the whole, freedom was advanced by this great institution uh, in that time. So um, I think it's, uh, it, it's important to see this historically rather than just to lay down absolute principles. And I'd also say that when Anthony Grayling set out these various things that should be protected by law, uh, I'd be very sympathetic with much of what he said, but I would point out that he is, in, in, in a sense, when he does that, expressing his religion, because he, he, he is saying that a choice is the only thing that matters and what you can't choose you... People would not historically have said that. People in many places would disagree. For example, he seemed to be saying that there should be no distinction between the rights of the two sexes. Many people, most people in that room would now agree with it, but it is a legitimate point of view to argue otherwise and it's a point of view uh, which has been held by most people uh, throughout history that women and men have different characteristics. Uh, which may issue in different uh, legal order, educational, and so on. Um, I'm not asking anybody to think that that's right. I'm merely pointing out that he's expressing a set of beliefs which he thinks should be protected by law, and religious people have expressed another set of uh, beliefs which they think should be protected by law. However, we live in a society today, at least in the West, where um, our law, though it is derived from religious belief, is not precisely religious. Uh, and I think we don't want it to be. Uh, we, for a whole variety of reasons, we do not want it to be, uh, and we would regard it as regressive or oppressive if it were uh, so to be. Um, and so whenever somebody now says that um, religion in this country should be protected by law, I find myself strongly against it. And the odd thing that's happened is it almost at one point became politically correct to say that it should be protected by law, because the old protections which had been for Christianity, because that was the foundation of the state, of the culture, of the political order. Um, that ceased to be the argument, and the argument was that it was a sort of aspect of multiculturalism and ethnicity that your religion should be protected by law. Uh, and I would uh, argue that that was a very dangerous um, path down which to go, because when people are arguing for the protection of their religion by law, what they're actually trying to do is grab a certain amount of power they're trying to uh, capture a bit of the public space uh, so that, and, and I think, without wishing to be sectarian about it, I would accuse um, Islamists, not, not Muslims in general, but Islamists, of arguing that specifically, because what, they, what are they thinking of is the idea that Islam should rule in a temporal sense. So they're trying to acquire sacred space, uh, and they're trying to acquire it in, in this country, among others. And that should be very much resisted. The, the blasphemy law in Pakistan was mentioned. One of the things I observe, without being, being at all knowledgeable about it, about the blasphemy law in Pakistan, is that it is, of course, an instrument of power um, being used against people who various politicians don't like. Um, and it can be used in term, to attack the Christian minority, for example. One thing you often read about in Pakistan is that um, it is alleged that a Christian has... Um, desecrated the Quran in some way. And it's not proved, uh, but it's alleged. And then um, persecution starts, a court case starts, and it's also a riot often starts. Um, and often that involves doing things like smashing the windows of Christian shopkeepers, uh, which, and all, that, and all that has to do with... 
Oh, here's uh, Professor Grayling's friends again. I, uh, by the way, on that point, sorry, that reminds me, I, I mustn't divert for too long, but when, when they were standing there, you might not be able to see it, but they were, what they were doing is they were waving wallets um, because I think they were complaining about the idea that Professor Grayling's university would only be available for people with uh, large sums of money. And it, it, it makes it... It's a point I want to make, which is a slight criticism, not of your university scheme, we're not talking about that, but about of your argument today, um, which is that when you express yourself very freely, you're not only exercising a right, but you're often, if you're like me, a journalist in a national newspaper, or like Professor Grayling, a distinguished professor, you're often speaking from a position of power. And I think one just has to bear that in mind when, when one's insulting people, that it's quite frightening to be insulted by somebody who you think are powerful. And anybody who has ever been insulted by the Daily Mail, for example, <laughs> will, will, will know that one of the things that's so vile about it is they're very powerful people. Um, and that, that, yes, they do have the right to insult uh, people, but let's just remember um, how, what a very formidable um, thing that can be when um, uh, the Daily Mail is on your tail for whatever it thinks you've done wrong. So I'm not going to defend um, the, uh, a, 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 a restriction on um, comment on religion uh, by law, but um, sorry, can you hear? Yes. Um, uh, I, but I do want to talk a bit about the question which Tim asked me to talk about, which is what should be said, uh, what should or should not be said, which I think is a more difficult question. Um, the fact that human rights uh, talk um, and provides for freedom of religion surely implies that religion should be respected. It's obviously considered to be a very important aspect, uh, even by people who draw up human rights codes who are completely irreligious themselves. They surely believe that this is a very important thing, uh, that re religion should be um, should be freely practiced and freely expressed. So what that implies is the idea that religion itself is important, uh, and also perhaps that it goes to people's hearts. And in this respect, the question of, is it like mathematics? There's an aspects of religion that are like mathematics, but the, uh, there are as other aspects that aren't. And uh, I think another thing that a religious person tends to observe about um, irreligious people is that they really don't know much about religion. Now, this is often our fault, it may be said. Um, we don't explain it well, and we seem so revolting that people um, uh, are not attracted to what we're arguing, or whatever it may be. But nevertheless, it is a fact that um, religion is extremely hard to understand from the outside. It's pretty hard to understand from the inside, too, but uh, um, from, from the outside particularly so. And therefore, it's a foolish person who starts rushing in and attacking. Let's take the Jewish customs of diet, for example. They are, to me, I must say, perplexing. Um, uh, and I wonder why um, such brilliant people spend so much time worrying about them. But I bite my tongue when I start to... Um, think about that sort of thing, because I know that this is a very complicated uh, set of arrangements which relate to all sorts of other ideas about law, about, uh, about a people and a tribe, about people living together, uh, about climate, about what's decorous, uh, about how animals are best looked after, and so on. Uh, and so, basically, I shut up, and I don't start saying, um, oh, no, there shouldn't be kosher restaurants, because I know that there's actually a whole load of things going on here that 
that matter very much, um, but which I don't understand. And speaking as a Catholic, I find that literally every single person who's spoken to me ever, who's not a Catholic, about the doctrines of the Mass, of Holy Communion, uh, in some respects doesn't understand them. Uh, and, by the way, most of us Catholics don't either. But, um, uh, uh, but uh, th this, I just illustrate the, the, diff the, the importance here of um, recognising that something very complicated uh, and deep is going on. And this is particularly true, of course, of great religions. Now, one of the things difficulties now is that almost anything could be defined as a religion. Um, and, of course, without wishing any disrespect to the Duke of Edinburgh on this, his 90th this very day, his 90th birthday, I would just remind people that there is a religion in the South Seas where they worship the Duke of Edinburgh. There is an island in the South Seas where he is considered to be God, and um, penis gods are, are issued in his honour. And um, uh, while I um, th think this is very uh, sort of rather touching, actually, I, um, I, I, I'm not claiming that we should all automatically issue equal respect to absolutely everything else that calls itself a religion. And I would tend not to give a great deal of intellectual time to the idea that the Duke of Edinburgh is divine. But um, uh, the, 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 when you talk about um, a great, widely believed, long-established religion, Hinduism, Judaism, uh, Christianity, Islam, and so on, you are talking about an immensely complex set, set of thoughts, feelings, uh, laws, history, art, uh, poetry, scripture, and so on. And therefore, it's highly unwise not to recognise the importance of that test of time. And therefore, it's usually unwise to be plain rude. Uh, it would be absurd not to be critical. It would be absurd not to express your disagreements if you felt them. But it would be dangerous just to say, this is all revolting piffle. It's most unlikely that none of it will be revolting piffle, but it's also even more unlikely that it's all revolting piffle. Um, I don't agree with the idea that's now put about uh, by those who wish religion to be protected by law that the biggest problem is the offence caused to the believer. One reason I don't agree with it is I see the consequences of this, which is if, if people think that offence, that, that they will get some power by being offended, they decide to get even more offended. So, so the most disagreeable people um, make the most fuss uh, uh, about how everything is being, um, you know, how, oh, I'm taking terrible effect. Oh, yes, this really hurts me. Um, and I'm very suspicious of that. And indeed, as a Christian, since one's taught to um, turn the other cheek, uh, it would be an unchristian act to take tremendous offence, even when offence is given. So um, I, I, would be, um, I would be very uh, careful about that. I don't think the issue is, um, are some people offended? I think it's more that if you have a just understanding of what it is to follow, to follow a faith, you wouldn't actually want to offend people. You, you, would, you would respect it, um, because uh, it is something of such importance and depth and interest um, and, uh, I would say, reality. And I would, I would argue reality, I would argue the point about reality, even to, those, uh, to atheists who say that it's totally unreal. A comparison you could make, for example, is the idea of what people feel about a family. There are quite a lot of people in the modern world who don't really believe in the idea of family. But to most people throughout history and in most parts of the world, and even most people in this country, family ties are, in some, are, are vitally important and in some sense sacred. 
And we all know that to insult someone's children or parents or spouse is to do them a very grave injury and is a, a, a contemptible thing to do. And I think if you were to understand what, what it is to have a religious uh, sentiment, um, you have to think of it rather like the love that is felt for a family. When Muslims speak of Muhammad, they always... Uh, some have mentioned this point that uh, they love that they have that strong idea of loving the prophet and they always say peace be upon him whenever they mention him um, because that's a, an expression of that love and Christians are brought up to have a special love for Jesus and to, to feel of course that he loves them and they love him in return and that God is their loving father and if they're Catholics they also think they have a special love for the Virgin Mary and they will often speak of her as their mother. So he's in, in, for the believer, Christian believer, Jesus is in your head and your heart, and he's sort of by your hearth. He's in your home. He's, he's with you. Um, once those things are clear, clearly recognised, it would be a, a strange and brutal person who wanted to um, just chuck a whole load of audio at all of that. Uh, they wouldn't have to accept any of the doctrines, but it would be strange um, and, and uh, crude and unpleasant. Once upon a time, the evangelical movement, if anybody exclaimed with the name of Jesus by, by way of uh, swearing, they would say, don't say that, he happens to be a friend of mine. I, I personally find that rather awful twee way of... Uh, <laughs> but, but, but the point is there. The idea is real in people's minds that um, Jesus is their friend, as the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And you, don't, you, you, you should not try to insult people's friends without very good reason. And this is also very important in a, all religions, the idea of the image of the divine and the word of the divine. And the idea of the image can cut both ways. So in Islam, as, as I understand it, you cannot depict um, uh, uh, Muhammad, sorry, I know Muhammad is not divine, but you, you see the point. Um, so, so some religions do it by, by think, thinking the image is so important that you can't even depict it, and others think, most Christians, for example, they're not all, would say, you should depict it, but you should depict it beautifully. And similarly, the word is so important. So great, great attachment is given to these things. And these two, two should surely be respected, because they are... Um, expressions of truth, uh, expressions of beauty, um, and they show the way in which people think uh, about their beliefs. So, for example, it's much easier and uh, better, I mean morally better, I think, to say that Christianity and Islam and so on are all untrue um, than to say things like uh, Muhammad was a paedophile. I, I have written in print defending the proposition that people should be allowed to say that Muhammad was a paedophile, uh, there are specific reasons why um, people do say this. Uh, but um, nevertheless, I think uh, people should discourage themselves from saying it uh, unless they really feel they can prove it. It's not fine. It's fine to argue against the set of beliefs, but not, I think, to impugn the motives uh, of those who, held, who hold them. Um, now, however, as a, having said all that, when one shows this respect, it must be real respect, and it must not be governed by fear. And one of the things that's happening now in being polite about religions is that people are politest about the ones they're most frightened of. So that means they all suck up to Islam now and are very rude, and you see all these alternative comedians 
who do who do bold brawling things where, where they sort of um, mock the Last Supper or something like that, because they know in the end nobody's going to come uh, and threaten them, um, and they're not so sure about that. I actually heard one comedian justified this on the grounds he's one alternative comedian said, um, "Yes, well, Muslims are better at protecting the brand," was how he put it, um, uh, and. Um, uh, but this is a very, very uh, alarming state of affairs if really all it is is you're frightened of attack. And as a former editor, I do understand this because, of course, you do respond when people get very, very angry. Once I was editing the Sunday Telegraph and I inadvertently allowed a Hindu journalist who worked for us to write a little item about Sikhs. And I'm afraid we just weren't paying attention to it. And he said something about how Sikhs had extraordinarily strong libido or something like that. Was, and, um, uh, and it was... Um, way out of order, and um, it just hadn't been noticed. And what happened, of course, was that the Sikhs protested. That in itself was perfectly entitled to do, but I'm afraid we were moved by the fact that they threatened to, to march on our building waving ceremonial swords. And at that point, we um, were somewhat more attentive to their complaint than we would have been if a similar uh, rudeness had been offered to um, the Methodists. <laughs> and... So there I think that um, if one's being bullied, the journalist in me would immediately come out and say, you know, if, if we're being bullied, then much better to be rude than to give in. Um, and so that's the, uh, uh, that, that, that's the balance. Um, and I think one must risk offence rather than capitulation. But nevertheless, offence is not something which should, one should automatically be proud of. And I think it's a particularly male thing um, uh, and, and a particular thing of a highly educated person to think that you've done something wonderful if with your words you have offended some, somebody. But um, actually, you might just have done something pretty stupid. Thank you. <laughs>